week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. In 2005, Bobby Julik won the first ever edition of the Enico Tour of the Benelux. The Enico Tour was born as an attempted merger between the existing tours of the Netherlands and Belgium. The Tour of the Netherlands had existed since 1948, and the first Tour of Belgium took place as far back as 1908. As it happened, the Tour of Belgium remained in place and it was only the Tour of the Netherlands which morphed into the Enico Tour of the Benelux. The race organiser said the following about the new venture. It's a combination of classic elements. We are aiming it at the classics riders. We hope to get the current Van Pettigams, Bougards and Bettinis at the start. Only a complete rider can win this race. With elements of Liège-Bastogne-Liège, the Amstel Gold Race and the Tour of Flanders, we hope to distinguish ourselves within the Pro Tour. At the end, a closing time trial will crown the Tour. But the very first edition of the race was marred by a farcical situation which arose on stage 4. Former Belgian champion Rick Verbrugge was in the overall lead as the race travelled 232 kilometres from Landgraf to Verviers. With 100 kilometres to go to the finish, a breakaway of four riders had a nine-minute lead on the peloton, but it was under control and falling steadily. But after the descent of the Côte de Wan, a race marshal-related error caused the peloton to take the wrong turn. By the time the riders realised, it was too late to turn around. So race leader and local boy Rick Verbrugge led the peloton on a detour, which eventually saw them return to the marked race route with 55k to go. But the breakaway had not taken the wrong turn and were now 15 minutes clear and certain to make it to the finish to battle it out for the stage win. The commissaires asked the leaders to stop riding and allow the lead to reduce back down to what it was before the mishap. But the leaders, which included Jason McCartney and Christian van der Velde, refused to stop as they had done nothing wrong. Eventually, after the police intervened and put a halt to the leader's progress, another of the breakaway riders, Bart Dox, sat on the ground in protest. While all the arguing took place, the rest of the race caught up to the leaders. It was agreed that the breakaway riders would commence cycling and be allowed to build up a four-minute lead, at which the peloton would resume their chase. But by that point, the momentum and the hunger was lost, and the bunch caught the breakaway, and Alessandro Balan eventually won the stage. The race was won overall by Bobby Julik, which was to be his last ever stage race victory. The Enico Tour is currently part of the top tier of World Tour races and was won last year by Lars Boom. I'm always fascinated by the pieces that you put together for uh, for your wee monologues that are part of the show. But this one's unique in history because it combines both a rider I don't give a toss about and a race I barely care about. <laughs> oh, well, glad to be of service. Um, yeah, I suppose it's a strange one to put in... Um, we were recording this a couple of weeks after I had put put these notes together, and um, just at, at the time, th- th- this whole World Series cycling thing was very fresh, and uh, I, I just, it got me thinking about, um, you know, races that try and, and wriggle their way into the, the top tier, and um, th- they haven't been th- that successful, you, mm-hmm. you know, so the Enico Tour is probably one of the more prominent ones, in that, in that it is in the top, to- the top tier of races, it's part of the World Tour now. But it really, I mean, it certainly hasn't captured your imagination by the sense of things and, <laughs> and uh, you know, most people's imaginations. It's just, um, it just hasn't really worked. And I just thought it was interesting going back to to, um, to read those quotes from the race organisers that I said in the piece, you know, their plans for the race, that it would be this kind of ultimate uh, realm of the classic specialists. And that really, really isn't what it has become. I mean, if you look back on the, on the winner's, 
um, all of the winners, they're all time trial specialists. You know, there's a fairly lengthy time trial put in it every year. So, like, Bobby Julek won the first one. He's obviously a time trial guy. Then Stefan Schumacher, uh, Tony Martin, Edvald Bosenhagen. And, I, and last year, I think it was, um, or this year still, it was uh, Lars Boom. So, like, these are all time trial guys. And, yeah, you know, they, could, they can they can ride classics as well, but they're not... You know, I, I suppose they were expecting a battle royale between, you know, Johan Museo and Paolo Bettini and, mm-hmm. and, and those kind of guys. And it just it never really played out. And now you have, uh, you know, these, these this gifted group. First of all, is that the most pretentious name you've ever heard for a group of people? Like, <laughs> I, 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 they, that, that, that just gets me riled straight away. But uh, they, they have come along and say uh, uh, you know with this with this plan that they're going to introduce these 10 races of four days each and, and with, with no history no heritage and yet here's a race who which takes takes place in the absolute heartland of cycling it, it, it which is dripping in heritage and you know the Enico tour is new as a tour but i mean it does have kind it's bar it has borrowed its heritage from the tour of belgium like if you look back over the list of of or sorry not the Tour of Belgium because that still exists but the Tour of Holland e- mm-hmm. either way those two races like if you look back over the winners list of those you know that's a who's who of cycling history so you know this Enigo Tour I mean it kind of has borrowed that heritage it's changed slightly but it's it's uh, metamorph metamorphosized into something else and here it is you know a, a six or seven day stage race and it's it can't it's it's not working like I, I mean i don't know whether it's financially viable or, or not but from a fan's point of view i mean I, i'd say many people don't tune in and and it's it's i suppose it's for a number of reasons first of all uh i i don't think belgians enjoy stage racing I and mean, maybe that's a bit of a generalization they love i think eddie merckx quite enjoyed it well eddie merckx did yeah but but, but the fans <laughs> I, I think you know they, they haven't been given much since Merckx to get excited about in terms of stage racing, yeah. uh, and you know they, I think they really love the 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 one day the all or nothing gamble attacks that that kind of define classics, mm-hmm. uh, and so there's so there's that forcing stage racing on, on on that sort of terrain hasn't worked. Then I suppose the the position in the calendar where it was given, which is just after the Tour de France, um, which I suppose isn't. It's probably one of the worst positions on the calendar. People are, you know, they talk this tour hangover, and people are all cycled out after that. And and you know, it's it's hard to gather up enthusiasm mm-hmm. so so soon after the tour. And then I I was I threw in another thing that maybe has affected it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is just a personal thing, but that it has a sponsored name, and that it's the Enico Tour, and and that kind of it doesn't really give it any sort of identity like if you have the tour of of holland or i keep calling it the tour of holland which is probably politically incorrect it's the tour of the netherlands yeah you know you know straight away all right the tour of the netherlands yeah i i get it i know what that is but if you have the enico tour the enico tour what the hell is that no i mean uh, you, you raise an excellent point there because we've talked about this before a race the really great races have a very definite sense of place you know, Liege, Bastogne, Liege, wherever it finishes, you know, whether it finishes up, you know, the final climb they use now or, or down beside the river, it always felt like Liege, Bastogne, Liege. You know, the Tour of Flanders, there's uproar when they change the climbs. You know, you could shut your eyes and listen to the fans and know where a race is. But this, as with the whole World Series cycling thing, it, feel, it feels like a manufactured product as opposed to a race with heritage or history, even though, you know, it's, it's grown out of races which have that history. And I think World Series cycling particularly shows, 
you can't actually make a classic. A classic earns its name, whether it's a short tour like this or a single day one. Yeah, and and like the the race that keeps um, cropping up when people talk about this as the only kind of example that we have of a race that has captured the imagination of fans. Excuse me, is um, the Strade Bianchi, yeah, uh, one day race in the spring, and uh, you know that has that's a brilliant race, and uh, but 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 you know that has a really, I mean, it has it has an identity, it has a unique selling point, and it, it's. Um, it's it is a kind of a throwback to yesteryear and a different generation. Whereas, you know, these like I I tried I tried to think about this in in a neutral sort of way. And it, so if I imagine that the the World Series cycling say okay we're going to have a one of our four day races is going to be in Ireland, and I, I would I be excited about that? And, and I I'd say I probably would I probably would be excited about it, that. You know, because we don't have a top-level stage race. Mm-hmm. But then I thought, well, why would I get? It? Why should I get excited about that when we had a top-level stage race and it's gone? Why? Why do they not just bring that? Why don't they invest in bringing that back? That has a heritage. The Tour of Ireland. I mean, that was born out of the, Nish- the Nissan Classic. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, Sean Kelly won that. Greg LeMond wrote that as world champion. You know, Stephen Roach wrote it as world champion. You know, Eric van der Arden was winning sprints. Johan Museo was in the yellow jersey in that race. You know, there's heritage. Why don't we? Why don't we bring that back? Have to have to finish on Patrick's Hill like they always did. And and people would people would people would know what that was and go, yeah, okay, I can get behind this. Whereas, you know, if if the four day race comes in, I just I think people will look at it and go, oh, well, I don't I don't really know what this is. And and. And quite apart from that, um, you know, their plan is to have a flat stage, a hilly stage, a mountain stage and a time trial. You know, can you do that in Ireland and Belgium? Is there a mountain stage to be had in these types of countries? I mean, certainly you could have hilly stages till the cows come home. But but a mountain stage in Belgium. So does that mean Belgium aren't going to get one of these races and it's going to be overlooked as part of this series? And the Netherlands and, uh, you know, many other countries that just can't, they don't have the terrain. So, like, are they are, are we ruled out now of, of this series? You know, how are they going to work this? Mm-hmm. And, and and like, you just like again, I I go back to when I when I wrote this piece in the first place. It, it was straight off the back of uh, an interview. I think it was on Cycling News um, that they did with Jonathan Price. He's this leader, or you know, glorious leader of the Gifted Group, and and um, you know, he he was talking about the fact that cycling fans uh, are, are are basically stupid i mean that was the message i got he, he said you know it, it, cycling fans can't he i think his words were they can't explain why uh wiggins can win the tour de france whereas mark cavendish can win more stages or or why certain riders can win classics and they can't win grand tours you know like what kind of idiots does he think we are or the general public that aren't cycling fans yet you know how hard is it to sit somebody down Take two minutes out of your day and explain that actually this is the way cycling works, and and you know I I found especially over the course of the Olympic Games when many of my friends were uh, looking at cycling for the first time and mm-hmm. and I did have to explain you know what was going on that they were really excited by it and intrigued by it and it wasn't just you know like a game of football that you could just sit down and watch and understand straight away it was you know you had to really kind of think about this and go oh right well what's going on there and what's going on there and they were really interested by it Mm -hmm. because if you dumb that entire sport down to this series of blank monotonous races that are going to be won by the same person 
you know, there's, if there's no difference in the races, that I mean, what's to stop the same guy winning, winning them over and over? Yep. You, you know, then the, you you take that entire the the subtleties and the and the intrigue out of the entire sport are just lost straight away. And it, it, like this is why we love the sport. You know, this is why we we ch- sorry we tune into um the Tour de France and and and, and when. You know, when the when the spring classics are over, it's like okay, I, I'm kind of I, I'm finished with one day races. Let's let's move on to a grand tour, which is something completely different, something completely different to get excited about, a different approach to watching cycling. Never mind taking part in it, and, and you know, to to have that replaced by something invented by a guy who seems to be more naive than any cycling fan I know, mm-hmm. then it, it's just it's sickening, and it's it's just it would be a really really tragic thing to happen to the sport, and I really hope it doesn't come to pass. I wish I could find a single thing to disagree with. You're on fire this morning, mate. I've been watching you on Twitter before we started recording. You're an angry young man today. (laughs) Festering throughout the Christmas period. (laughs) I tell you, you've, you've said passionately and clearly exactly what I feel about this thing. It's a synthetic, manufactured, cynical attempt to exploit our sport. You know, the sport has to have a realistic financial background. You know, it has to change its business model so that the whole thing can't come down like a house of cards. But this farcical thing, which frankly I was really disturbed was given a presentation at the Change Cycling Now conference, I think it it fundamentally damaged the credibility of Jamie Fuller and co. And in fact, I kind of wish Scott hadn't gone as a result of that, purely that single presentation by, uh, by Price. The whole thing is a farce and I hope it stops now. It just can't carry on. Yeah, and and just to, just one last thing, like another thing that Jonathan Price said in that piece was that he saw a financial opportunity. You know that that's what he's described this as nothing more than a way to line his own pockets, and he he has made no secret of that fact. So I think I think I read an article that Ed Pickering wrote on the Cycle Sport website. He should not be allowed within a hundred miles of a cycling race, and I completely agree with that. It, I I think the, the sooner he he is he is told to told where to go, the better. Yep, absolutely. Now, I'm going to move on swiftly because I think we're in for a ranty show this week. Um, <laughs> under 23 World Road Race is what the next one's about, and there's been a stellar number of uh, high-level riders who've come through that. And the winner almost always goes on to great things. But here's a story of someone who uh, who didn't. In 2005, Dimitro Grabowski won the Under 23 World Road Race Championships. On a testing course in Madrid, which saw strongman Tom Boonen win the elite race, Dmitro Grabowski was omnipresent for the last 80k of the under-23 race, following dangerous moves and chasing down breakaways. The Ukrainian eventually found himself in the winning move with five other riders. With a few kilometres to go, Grabowski simply rode away from his breakaway companions to cross the line solo with a 26-second advantage. Just 19 years old at the time, Grabowski was asked after the race what his future plans were. He said... I want to gain experience for now, but maybe in 2007 I will sign a contract with a good team. I am not really ready yet. I want another year before stepping up. Grabowski remained as an amateur for the first half of 2006, winning two stages and leading the baby Giro for most of the race, before ultimately finishing second behind Dario Cataldo. His fine performances eventually led him to signing for Quickstep, managed by Patrick Lefebvre. However, during his two years at Quickstep, Grabowski didn't perform at all as well as expected, later admitting that he suffered from alcoholism and lapsed badly during his time as part of the Belgian team. He said, After some disappointments at Quickstep, I landed on the wrong track. Something snapped in me and I had many problems. I had too much free time. I was lonely and bored. 
after training i went to the seaside to party for drinks and women after a break grabowski continued cycling in 2009 signing for the italian isd neri pro continental level team where again the results didn't quite come although he did win the mountains classification at the 2010 terreno adriatico in 2011 he moved down a division again signing for the continental level lamprey isd team but it was here where information on grabowski begins to run dry he was set to ride the Ampost Ross in 2011 for the Lamprey ISD team and was listed in the provisional lineup, but he was not on his bike as Stage 1 departed from North County Dublin. He has no listed road results since 2010 and he is not currently registered as part of any professional cycling team. So, Grabowski, huge talent, clearly. Um, and the important thing for me here is once again you've managed to get a bloody Irish reference in, even when there's no Irish riders mentioned. I, I wonder, do I have a 100% record in that regard? I'm not sure. I, I'd have to look back, but I'd say I'm not far off. <laughs> but, I tell uh, you, the, the under-23 World Road Race, I mean, you just need to look at the, you know, the history of the winners. 1997, uh, Kurt Asla Ar- Arvison beat Oscar Freire. 98, the podium was Ivan Basso, Nocentini and Danilo De Luca. You know, you look through Ev- Evgeny Petrov, Popovich, Chichi, Velitz, all of these people... You know, I've gone to the very top end of the sport, and this guy clearly had the potential to do it, but it's it's a wasted talent, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose it's it is. I, I this is what I spend many hours and days wasted wasting away in my in my man cave at home doing is looking at these kind of results. And yeah, like you say, if you do look down the list of the under twenty three world champions, um, you know most of them go on to great things. It's not so the case with the junior champions because they're that little bit younger and there is that that little bit more opportunity to, you know... Discover uh, beer in women is what the opportunity is for. Or men in the women's case. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, so, you know, some of them do get distracted. But, you know, Grabowski, um, you know, he obviously made that juncture between being a junior and being an amateur and he was a successful amateur. I mean, he he also finished second in the world's time trial that year and, you know, he'd already won... um, I think he may have won world track medals, junior mm-hmm. track medals. I'm not sure about that, but he definitely won European track medals. You know, so this guy was a, a serious, serious talent. I mean, and if you just look at the um, the names of, of the riders in the in that were in the final shakeup that year that he won it, I mean, you're talking like there there are no mugs. Like there was, you know, Chris Sutton, Mark Cavendish, Lars Boom, Johnny Mearsman. Robert Hessink, you know, these were big, big guns, and he beat them all fairly easily. Well, you know, nothing is easy, but, you know, he, he, he imperious fashion, you know, he, he beat these guys. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it just it just went wrong. And, and, and I suppose, like like anybody in any other walk of life, you know, if you have a predisposition to, to you know, addiction and alcoholism, you know, that, that, that doesn't discriminate whether you're a top athlete or, or, or just a, a guy working in an office. You know, if it's going to get you, it'll get you. And, I'd actually uh, I'd go further than that because I've had quite a few discussions about this. And I mean, I remember on the first run of the Velocast um, when we talked to Tyler Hamilton when he was still lying through his teeth about, uh, about doping. Yeah. Um, a good number of really, really elite athletes that I know use cycling to control albeit very minor mental health issues, as, as a lot of people self-medicate with alcohol. Yeah. Because when you're on the bike, working really hard, you know, thinking through a race, you can't worry about anything else. You know, it's, it's almost cleansing. And if you take that away, or if you put someone in a situation where they don't have support, which is, I think, what you were talking about with Grabowski here, because he talks about cracking, and, you know, and he was lonely, and he had too much free time. 
Mm. Then they'll turn to another way to control that demon. Pantani's well, Pantani's perfect example. Yeah, because I, I I have that written in the notes just that <laughs> cycling is a lonely pursuit, and uh, yeah, I guess it can be used <laughs> like you say as a as a as a mechanism of coping. But I suppose I put it in as well because uh, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but like it's a to me it's a kind of a sport that attracts the the kind of the stranger people in society. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, know, you know, like it, it's not you know if you're if you're the cool guy in school, you'll you'll play football uh, or, or or whatever you know soccer, um or or rugby or whatever. But if if you're kind of a little bit of a curveball, uh, you know, you might find yourself going down this cycling route. And I don't know, maybe I'm being a bit crude there, but I, I, I think it, it does attract this certain kind of person that enjoys their own company and and, uh, and, and maybe is a little bit odd. And, you, you know, that that um, these guys like um, Grabowski and Marco Pantani, and I've put Frank Vandenbroek in there as well, yeah. that just uh, w- wired strangely. And, and yeah, yeah. I mean, you actually just need to look at the most recent Tour de France winner. I mean, there was a really good Sky documentary which followed, you know, Team Sky and Wiggins. Um, and I feel slightly strange here because I had a hard time with Sky fans last night on yeah. Twitter, but we won't go into that. Um, but they talk about how after he broke his collarbone, you know, when he was in tip-top form in the, the 2011 Tour, um, he turned once again to, to alcohol as, as a way to calm his demons, as he'd done in the past. And it took a fairly serious intervention from, I think, Shane Sutton was the person who was mentioned, to, to shake him out of it and pull him together. So, I mean, there we could, we're looking now at, you know, a lionised Wiggins who won the Tour de France. But it was, yeah, a, fl- it was a flip of a coin from, you know, from going the other way. And that, that collarbone snap in 2011, book, you know, bookending his career. Yeah, and I think you, you need guys like that. Like, Shane Sutton is a hard man. And, and you know, he, he, he's a real hard character who, who would... You know, he, I, I'm sure he's a guy you listen to when he's talking to you, and, and you, you know, for like cycling to me, it, it, it seems and always has seemed it's very disorganised. If you if you read reports of you know uh, a year in the life of a cyclist, and you, you know you get it from autobiographies and that, you know, there's no you don't go to, to training every day with your teammates to a, to a to a, a football pitch. You know, you're kind of left to your own devices a lot, and it can seem quite scattered and disorganised. And if you're left to your own devices like that. And you are predisposed to this kind of problem, you know. Like, I mean, it can manifest itself in terrible ways. And like, I, I just there was a when when I was re- trying to find out about um, Grabowski, you know, there's not a whole lot about him in the last couple of years. And I was kind of uh, trying to find out w- what happened to him, you know. And um, the last article I could really find where he he was in, actually interviewed for the article um, was one written by Daniel Freib in Pro Cycling. Um, in uh, the summer of 2010 mm-hmm. and in that um his uh, his former manager his name is Luca Skinto he, he or Shinto or whatever way you want to pronounce it if you're an Italian as an Irishman I'll go with Skinto so, I would go with Shinto but I mean <laughs> right. we have a 100% record of disagreeing on uh, on pronunciation <laughs> right. in this show mate. right but uh, so he he was his amateur team manager and he was his manager again when he joined the ISD team and it, there's just a quote from here he said um uh, it was okay when he was an amateur because except for the odd night on the tiles we kept him under control here in the team HQ it was when he went away and got his own with Andre Grivko who just sat back and watched his so-called friend self-destruct that the problem started so you know it was when he started getting a bit of money getting a bit of freedom he wasn't this 
Kate anymore in a in a team house being looked after that he he went off the rails and you know if you don't have a guy like you say like Shane Sutton te- beating you into shape and saying look this is this is the way it is this is you know if you do this this is going to happen but if you come with me and do this you know everything could be yours kind of stuff you know if you don't have that guy telling you that then you know I I feel really sorry for these kind of guys and and I'm um, just as um an attempt to try and find out where he is now. Um, I, I contacted Daniel Freib and uh, he, the, who was the, the the writer of the last article I could find who talked to him. Um, he kindly made a call and he he said he got back to me and he said that um, some of his uh, ex teammates who are now on the Farnese Vinny team said that he's uh, the last they heard was he's back in Israel, which is where his parents moved to. Um, mm-hmm when Grabowski's cycling career kind of started taking off his parents uh upped sticks and moved to Israel so they think that he's back there now and uh, they reckon he may be attempting a comeback to racing but aren't sure so that that was that's the kind of the, the latest news but like I mean he's still only 27 and um you know it's probably too too late I don't know is it too late for him to come back and I'd be kind of concerned if he did I mean if if he's if he is the talent that everybody thinks he is, and he has this predisposition to these kind of problems, you know, he leaves him. He's leaving himself open very much to being exploited, very much in the way that Pantani was. If you read Matt Rendell's book about Mark Pantani, it's it's a tragic tale mm-hmm. of uh, exploitation, ex- exploiting a, a, a cash cow, and you know, you'd be concerned for for this guy's health and mental health if he did try and and make another comeback. Maybe he's better off staying away from cycling. I think he probably is, but I mean, it's it's a highlight that, you know, these guys, they're just human. You know, they're they're subject to the same foibles and uh, afflictions that affect the rest of us. Anyway, let's finish with uh, a a bang-up-to-date story. Um, This is is, uh, from 1929. In 1929... Nicolas France, André Leduc and Victor Fontaine were all declared leader of the Tour de France after the seventh stage. Maurice Douala was a Belgian rider who had finished on the podium of the two previous Tours de France, finishing second on his debut in 1927 and third the following year. In 1929, Douala wanted to finally win the race. After finishing at the same time as the stage winner on the first three stages, Douala took over the leader's yellow jersey after stage four when he made it into a two-man breakaway with Louis Delanoy, which finished just over three minutes ahead of the peloton. The following day, Delanoy faltered, leaving Douala three minutes ahead of most of the rest of the peloton. Douala maintained his lead until stage seven, where one of the more quirky events in tour history occurred. Douala, clad in the yellow jersey, punctured twice throughout the stage. In those days, there was no Mavic neutral service car or anything of the sort. Duvalo was required to repair the two punctures himself. Up the road, Duvalo's race lead was quickly disappearing as a five-man breakaway formed, three of whom had all been three minutes behind Duvalo before the stage. The reigning tour champion, Nicolas France, won the five-man sprint for the stage win and was accompanied home by Antonin Manier, Joseph Demuser, Victor Fontaine and André Leduc, all of whom were credited with the same time on the stage. This left France, Leduc and Fontaine all on the same time overall and all with a claim to lay on the race leader's yellow jersey as Duvala traipsed in several minutes down. The race organisers were left with no choice but to award three yellow jerseys after the stage, one to each rider. Thus, on stage eight from Bordeaux to Bayonne, three separate riders wore the yellow jersey in the 1929 Tour de France, the only time in tour history this has ever occurred. 
Maurice Diwalla would recover and go on to take back the yellow jersey on stage 10, and this time no more punctures could stop him, although they tried, as he would go on to win the Tour by 48 minutes. I know this is this week in cycling history, but that, that's quite long ago, Killian. It is. It's, it's so long ago that you might not even remember it, John. Well, no, I think I was only 10 or 12 when that race took place. Um, awesome, though. It would never happen today, would it? No, 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 certainly not. Like, I, and it's the more I read about this tour, the more it seemed like one of these, I don't know, these turning points in the tour's history, because uh, there was many rules that changed after that year. Um, I don't actually know if the the um, sorry the the uh, the stage placing rule and and how they determined the yellow jersey didn't change for a few years after that because it happened again in 1931, where uh, two riders ended up in the yellow jersey. But uh, there were another couple of rules that got changed. Um, you know, this this guy Douala won won the tour that year, and that was the year. It's kind of a famous quote where the tour organizer Henri de Grange he said he claimed that a corpse had has won my race because uh, halfway through or maybe even before halfway through, Douala fell ill, and uh, his team uh, basically, well, literally pushed him through stages. Um, at times, and uh, he, he was uh, a kind of a, a shadow of a man finishing it, but he won it, and uh, it, it, this disgusted De Grange because he was all about, you know, the strongest rider has to win, and um, as a result, and as a result of the tactics that played out to, to end up with Douala winning the race, he, uh, he changed, first of all, he changed um, from trade teams to national teams, so that there would be less... I don't really know. I suppose there would be less financial incentive for collusion. Well, I think I think Devala's team particularly had annoyed him because in 1928 the entire podium had been from the Alcyon team, which is, mm. is was his team. And it, and this one, there's tales of the team essentially having him in the middle as they rode in a line across the road. Yeah, so blocking. They'd, yeah, they'd be pushing him. You know, the two riders next to him would have their arms around him, essentially pushing him along. And, and the rest of them would ride across the road like, um, I'm thinking of Motorola after Fabio Casartelli were, were killed, you know? Or yeah, killed. yeah, yeah. And just stopping anybody attacking. And De Grosch was apparently incensed by this. Yeah, a, a man easily incensed by all accounts. Aye, absolutely. Uh, and, and uh, so, yeah, so he, he changed it from t- the trade teams that we know today to national teams. And it changed back a couple of times in the 60s, but eventually settled on trade teams again. Um, but... Uh, so, so, so that happened, and and actually, uh, one of the main sources I got for this story was um, a book written by Bill and Carol McGann. It was um, I can't actually remember the name, but I think it's just called the, the History of the Tour de France. And there's two volumes. One is from the earlier years, and one is from the later years. But there's a quote in there um, by the McGanns where it says, "In in doing this, um, in, in recognizing that Douala." had won it in this manner and changing from trade teams to national teams they said de Grange had officially recognized that cycling was a sport contested by teams and won by individuals which remains one of the most quirky elements of the sport today which i think is great and and uh, so so maybe that that was kind of born in 1929 and um it also as a result of that uh, the sponsors of the trade teams were really annoyed with De Grange for making it into national teams, that they didn't have a, a team to sponsor anymore. So they withdrew their sponsorship altogether. So De Grange, in his desperation and his scramble for money, he came up with the idea of creating the publicity caravan in front of the tour, which uh, which obviously is is uh, is out of control these days. But but it's 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 a massive part of the reason people turn up to watch the race. 
And uh, so that was also born out of a result of what happened in 1929. And um, which, which is, I, I, I think it's fantastic that all of this stuff going to happen at the same time. Yeah, I mean, you could also argue, and I've heard it argued, that out of this race came the, you know, the Mavic Neutral Service, if you like. Because before this point, um, and particularly in this race, actually, I think in 1928 it was different. But before this point, you had to fix your own your own mechanicals. You know, there's the old story about fixing your fork on a forge, and uh, you know, you see the old photos of the guys with their uh, goggles on and their tubulars wrapped around their shoulders so they could fix a puncture. Yeah. But one of these three guys, Victor Fontan, uh, was in the lead on his own uh, after stage eight, I think. Um, or stage nine, but then for some reason uh, he, he had a mechanical which trashed his bike. I mean, uh, some people say he hit a dog, and he went through every door of a town before he found a replacement bike. But according to the rules, he had to finish with a bike that he started with. So he strapped the broken bike on his back and rode for 145 kilometres through the Pyrenees and then gave up. Uh, which opened the door for Duvala to win, even though he was ill. So, as you say, this is a pivotal point. You know, 1929, loads of changes came through, and you could argue that this is one of the most important tours in history. Yeah, yeah, that's a mad story, actually, isn't it? That he, <laughs> with a bike on his back, like it's just crazy. But, but that that was the kind of the the masochist that De Grange was. You know, he he came up with these crazy rules, and uh, I suppose eventually was forced to change them. Um, <laughs> I don't know for the sanity of the riders, but but uh, Jesus, yeah, that's that's a mad story. Like it, and just on a related thing that um, uh, Victor Fontan broke his forks, and I suppose one of the most famous um, occurrences of that was Eugene Christoph in 1913 that he broke his forks and went to the forge and all that. That that story, I'm not sure if we covered it on uh, on this show before, but if we if we haven't, then we will. But but um, Eugene Christoph um, is kind of renowned as being the first guy who wore the yellow jersey as well mm-hmm. in uh in um 1919 was the was was the year that the yellow jersey came in but uh, i i found this story in um there's a book also called the companion to the tour de france which is by uh, a guy called les woodland and uh, he in it he contests that um Eugene Christophe wasn't the first guy to wear the to wear, to wear the yellow jersey and that uh, it was actually philip Thies He's he um he was the first rider to win the Tour de France three times, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, he he um in in this book, it says that he told this magazine called Champion et Vedette that Hon- Henri de Grange had asked Thies to wear a distinctive colour as race leader, but that Thies had declined because he didn't want to be more visible to his rivals, which you can kind of understand. Yeah. But um. Then uh, T says that several stages later, it was my manager at Peugeot who urged me to give in. The yellow jersey would be an advertisement for the company, and that and and that being the argument, I was obliged to concede. So a yellow jersey was bought in the first shop we came to. It was just the right size, although we had to cut a slightly larger hole for my head to go through. <laughs> and and that was in 1913, and uh, this was put to the official. Uh, historians of the Tour de France, and they said that there's no newspaper mentions of the yellow jersey before the uh, before the stop for the for the war, which was uh, 1915, was the first year that there was no tour, and that being at a loss for witnesses, um, they could they couldn't solve this this riddle, so that they they're not sure whether Philip Thies is right in this, but uh, Philip Thies seems pretty clear that he was he was the first guy to wear yellow, whereas the the official history has that it was Eugene Christoph. So I suppose. I don't, this stage, I mean, all the main players are, are, are no longer with us, so um, 
one of those things that that will never be solved i would imagine it's funny actually i mean i'll wrap this show up now because it's uh well, frankly, because I'm a bit tired, because I've, I've had a cold and I'm, my head's a bit blocked up. But, I mean, this is typical of this show. We got angry about modern developments of the sport at the start. We had a bit of social commentary about mental health in the middle. And we finished with something which, it, I mean, we both find absolutely fascinating, which is, you know, the historic nature of the sport. People look at the excitement that you get now when, you know, Fabian Cancellara's in a breakaway in Flanders or, you know, Bradley Wiggins is winning the Olympic time trial. The depth of history in this sport is awesome. And, I mean, that's one of the things I love about talking. I'd like to see every fortnight. It's been a month since our last one, I think. Uh, but that's largely the postal service's uh, fault. So, thanks again, Killian. Great work. Where can people find you? Um, I'm Irish Peloton on Twitter. And, um, yeah, there's the best place. Anyway, catch me nattering on about God knows what. I went on a bit of a rant this morning, so... Uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're upset with Uncle Pat today, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I won't get into it now, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, W. John Galloway on Twitter, and we'll be back in a fortnight with the next episode of This Week in Cycling History. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year!